Let's pray and ask God for his help. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our loving and holy Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you love us uh, and that you have shown us through your word who you are and what you have done for us. We pray this morning that we would understand your word better so that we know you better and so that we love you more. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, The other day I um, had my kids after school and uh, they wanted to play as kids do. But my oldest son, he had homework to do. So little, really. These fascist schools, they make uh, kids do homework. Uh, So, uh, poor little thing, I sent him off to the study to do his work. The other three, meanwhile, came out the front here with me, and as I watched, they jumped on the trampoline. At one point, as I was sitting there, I turned around and I saw Joel. Uh, He was in the study, but he had his face pressed up against the window, uh, watching the other children on the trampoline with this look of longing on his face. Poor little thing. You know, I reckon we are sometimes Christians like Joel was doing his homework. We feel the same way about being Christian as Joel felt about doing his homework. We know it's the right thing to do, and so we try to do the right thing. Keep all the rules, fulfil all the requirements, tick all the boxes... But meanwhile, we look out on the non-Christians. They seem to be having so much fun out there, partying and drinking and sleeping around and sleeping in on Sundays, although 10.30 service people were really here, and uh, (laughs) watching TV instead of going to Bible study and spending all their money on themselves, all, it seems, with no guilt. We see them out there. They seem to be having such a lovely time. And we press our face against the window and wish we were out there with them. Certainly, many non-Christians look in on Christianity and think it's a complete drag. You hear people say, well, first let me enjoy my life. Let me do all the good things that life has to offer. And then maybe later I'll become a Christian on my deathbed or something. Or uh, I'm sure you've seen the atheist campaign. It was particularly big in England, but a little bit of it here now. They had these signs on buses that said this, there's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. Non-Christians perceive that we Christians are missing out, missing out on the good things that life has to offer. And sometimes we can as well, can't we? Uh, We feel like living as a Christian is a necessary evil. We do it because, you know, we don't want to go to hell or something like that. But we'd much rather be out there having fun. That can make us resentful of God. Resentful that he demands so much. Resentful that he wants us to do all these things. We, We can feel like he's some kind of killjoy, and we can kind of flirt in our minds with the ways of the world, dreaming that if we could do these non Christian things with wistful longing, wishing that we could indulge our lusts without guilt or something like that. Well, time and time again, I hear of Christians who give the outward appearance of being Christians, all pious and holy and godly, but in the dark of night or when they're away on an overseas trip, when they think no one's looking, they indulge in all sorts of sins. They don't just flirt with the world, they get in bed with the world and its ways. Now, in this uh, central section of his letter, James is calling Christians to live wholehearted, 
godly Christian lives. At the end of chapter 1, do you remember back, uh, John prayed this before, do you remember he, he called at the end of chapter 1, he called on us to not just be hearers of God's word, but doers. Uh, in chapter 2, he said to us, don't show favoritism. Last part of chapter 2, he called us to have a living faith, a faith that works itself out in actions. Beginning of chapter 3, he called on us to, to change the way we speak, to tame our tongues, to be godly speakers. And then as we saw last week, James encourages his readers to show true wisdom. He wants us, chapter 3, verse 13, to show true wisdom by our good lives, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. And we saw last week then James distinguishes two types of wisdom. There's an earthly wisdom that leads to envy and selfish ambition, and there's a heavenly wisdom, which uh, verse 17, chapter 3, verse 17, is pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of, good, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. James says two very different kinds of wisdom, the wisdom of the world and God's wisdom. And he's told his readers, or he's begun to tell his readers, the different results of these two wisdoms. A heavenly wisdom, he says, can you remember, it leads to a harvest of righteousness, peace. But earthly wisdom leads to fights and quarrels and disorder and evil. Do you see where we are in, in James's uh, thinking? He wants his readers to live godly Christian lives, to live according to God's wisdom. And so he's contrasted God's wisdom with the wisdom of the world. And he's shown where the two lead in terms of human relationships. But the thing is, the wisdom that we choose, it doesn't just impact on our human relationships. That's not all that's at stake. It also has very serious implications for our relationship with God. And now at this point in the letter, James does something different. Something, something feels a bit rude almost. Uh, all through the letter, he's been addressing his readers as brothers. It's all been very lovely. In fact, he's called us beloved brothers or dear brothers, depending on which translation you're in. But, but now have a look at how he addresses his readers. James chapter 4 and verse 4. Have a look with me. James chapter 4 verse 4. You adulterous people. Now, literal translation, adulteresses. A pretty strong thing to call people, wouldn't you say? A big contrast, my beloved brothers, adulteresses. I reckon James is trying to get our attention here, don't you? Trying to get our attention, but more than that, he's picking up on an Old Testament image for Israel. Uh, often in uh, the Old Testament, Israel is called God's bride. Uh, but then when they went off after other gods, when they worshipped idols, they were called adulteresses. A couple of years ago when we did the book of Ezekiel, we saw a couple of quite awful, explicit chapters of uh, Israel's adulterous idolatry. Uh, Hosea, we did this a couple of years ago in, um, in church camp, do you remember? Uh, Grant Thorpe spoke to us about, you remember Hosea, he had to marry the adulterous wife to get this picture of uh, Israel being adulterous towards God. And we saw it also in our other reading this morning. From Jeremiah, Israel is supposed to worship and serve God alone. They are betrothed to him, but like an adulterous wife sleeping with other men, Israel worshipped and served idols. It's a spiritual adultery that's being talked about here. Well, James is using the image to refer to his readers, to the church. Here's his point. You see, as James's readers were showing earthly wisdom, as they were being envious and selfishly ambitious, 
as this was leading them to quarrel and fight and do all kinds of ungodly things, they weren't just wrecking the church. They weren't just ruining their relationships with each other. They were ruining their relationship with God. As the church flirted with the world and its wisdom, they were being unfaithful to God. James says that's a very serious matter. People, God's people, are betrothed to him alone. We must not flirt adulterously with the world. Verse 4 again. Verse 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Strong stuff, isn't it? It's not live happily with a foot in both worlds. It's not enjoy this life as much as you can and then maybe have a spiritual insurance policy with God or something like that. God is demanding total allegiance. No possibility of compromise. No flirting with the world and its wisdom. And James goes on to say that the spirit that God has put in us, and I take it he means the Holy Spirit here, the spirit God has put in us envies intensely. This is not a sinful envy. There is such thing as sinful envy. There's such thing as sinful jealousy. But this is an appropriate jealousy. Uh, of course, jealousy can be a very sinful and ugly thing. But there is also a place for jealousy. Uh, if my wife goes off with some other man, it is right that I should be jealous. It is appropriate that I should be jealous. If I just said, ah, oh, yeah, let her have a fun, it's all fine, that'd be wrong, wouldn't it? That'd be awful. That would show that I don't care about her, that I don't care about our relationship, that I don't value our marriage. There's an appropriate jealousy that a husband should have for the faithfulness of his wife and vice versa. God, through his Holy Spirit, James says, is jealous for our total commitment. As he always has, God demands that we love him with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. He demands that. He's jealous for it. Verse 5. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? Do you get what's at stake here? When James calls us to show true wisdom, the sort of wisdom that's pure and peace-loving and considerate and submissive and full of mercy and good fruit and impartial and sincere, we've got to realize the stakes. This is not just a suggestion. It's not just... Oh, look, if you happen to feel like you know, taking a day off from the world and you want to be God's person for a little while, then, then here's how it is. No, no. God jealously demands that we show this wisdom. Anything else, it is like adultery towards God. Adultery against God. That's a powerful image, isn't it? It's a powerful image. It stirs up powerful emotions. Uh, even here among us, there are people who have been through the painful process of reconciliation after betrayal, even here in this congregation, there are people whose marriages have been destroyed by adulterous betrayal. It produces incredibly strong, deep emotions, such pain, such anger. I've put on your outline there some verses from Proverbs, just to get, again, a picture of the kind of depth of emotion that can be produced here. See where I'm left-hand side, about halfway down. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his hunger when he's starving. Uh, yet if he's caught, he must pay sevenfold, though it costs him all the wealth of his house. But a man who commits adultery lacks judgment. Whoever does so destroys himself. Blows and disgrace are his lot, and his shame will never be wiped away. For jealousy arouses a husband's fury, 
and he'll show no mercy when he takes revenge. He will not accept any compensation. He'll refuse the bribe, however great it is. Jealousy arouses a husband's fury, powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. And James is saying, that's God. That is how God feels about us. When we follow the world and its wisdom, we make God furious with jealousy. When we flirt with idolatry and sin and when we wish we were out there doing the things that all the non-Christians are doing, we make God so angry. We ought to be his. He loves us. We ought to be his. He wants us for his own. But we betray him with our idolatry. Uh, you and I, we're in big trouble, aren't we? We're in deep trouble. I'm sure you're a nice person, a lovely person. But I'm also sure that, like me, you don't always follow the ways of the world. Uh, 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 I'm also sure that, like me, you sometimes follow the ways of the world. Uh, you sometimes do have selfish ambition and envy. Sometimes, uh, like me, you are not pure and peace-loving and considerate and submissive and full of mercy and good fruit and impartial and sincere. Sometimes, like me, you are impure. Sometimes, like me, you are inconsiderate, insincere. Friends, hear what James is calling that. It's not that you haven't ticked a box. James says that makes us adulteresses. James says that makes us enemies of God. Deep trouble. Deep trouble. Jealous fury. And that is why the next sentence is so critical. Uh, without this next sentence, we would, have, we would have no hope at all. Verse 6, speaking about God, verse 6, but he gives us more grace. God gives us greater grace. A, a grace that overcomes our failure and spiritual adultery, a grace that overcomes God's jealous fury, a mercy that James has told us triumphs over judgment. Now, you know what that grace is, don't you? I'm going to tell you again anyway. Even though we've made ourselves enemies of God, he still loves us. And he came in the person of Jesus. Jesus, he lived the life we should have lived, never committed spiritual adultery, always showed heavenly wisdom. But then on that cross, he died in our place to bear the jealous fury of God against our spiritual adultery. Jesus died on that cross and there he exhausted the full fury of God. So God raised him to life again and Jesus through God, Jesus, God through Jesus now offers forgiveness and cleansing to all who rely on him. He offers us these things by grace, as a free gift. As the Apostle Paul would later put it on your outline there, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Friends, you and I, we are spiritual adulterers. We've made ourselves enemies of God but he gives us more grace. He offers to have us back as his bride. That is wonderful, brilliant, glorious news, isn't it? God will have us back. 
So how should we respond to this jealous but gracious God? How should we respond to this husband who will have us back, to this God who deserves and demands so much but then at great cost has graciously forgiven us and, and welcomed us? Well, James tells us. He tells us exactly how to respond. And if I can summarise, I've put it on your outline there. It starts and finishes with humility and it changes everything. It starts and finishes with humility and it changes everything. Let's work through the passage. It starts with humility. Now, the only way that we can be in relationship with God is through his grace and mercy. We do not deserve it. We have not earned it. It can only come as a gracious gift to us. We can't get it by being good. We can't get it by being religious. We can't get it by having palms one Sunday and eggs the other Sunday and doing all these religious ritual things. We can't get it by anything that we do. We can only get it as a free and gracious gift from God to us. And the only way to receive that then is not by being good or righteous or, or holy or religious. It is only by humbling ourselves before God and accepting the free gift. God gives his grace to the humble. Verse 6 again. But he gives us more grace. And that's why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It starts with humility, this relationship. And then, well then everything changes. Then we submit ourselves to God. We say, God, you're the boss. You deserve to be the boss. You are rightfully the boss. Your ways are right. Your ways are good. You are like a loving husband and I want to live your way. Verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. We submit ourselves to God and that means we don't follow the devil and his wisdom anymore. You remember the wisdom that we talked about last week? Earthly, unspiritual of the devil. We refuse to submit to that. And notice what will happen. Verse 7 again. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We submit ourselves to God. We stop following the devil and his ways. And we come to God for the forgiveness and cleansing that he graciously provides. Uh, James calls us to come near to God and he says, cleanse your hands. That is, ask God to forgive you for what you've done. Ask God to help you from now on to do things for him. And he says, come near to God and purify your heart. Get a new heart. Get forgiven for, for your spiritual adultery and then ask God to stop you from being double-minded, to stop you from wanting to be the world's and God's at the same time. Ask God to, to help you become the kind of person that only wants to love and serve him so that we stop pressing our faces against the window and wishing we could be non-Christians. Verse 8. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We come near to God for forgiveness, for cleansing, for power to live his way. And then we, we stop loving the world and, and, and the sin that we once flirted with. We actually see it for how ugly and awful it is. Adultery against God, betrayal of the God who loves us and has graciously forgiven us. We've got to genuinely repent of this sin and turn away from it. Grieve its, its, its presence in our lives. Verse 9. Grieve, mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. How do we respond to the jealous yet gracious God? It starts with humility. It changes everything. And it finishes not with, boy, I've done a good job now, but with humility. 
because God alone is the one who can give us the grace we need. He alone can lift us up. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Uh, It reminds me of that uh, story that Jesus told of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You know the story? The, uh, The pious, religious, holy Pharisee shows up. He comes near to God. Looks like he's coming near to God in the temple and prays with thanks about what a great bloke he is. But then that awful tax collector comes in and he does draw near to God and he humbles himself and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He humbles himself and God lifts him up. Jesus says it's the tax collector who went home righteous, all his sin forgiven. The Pharisee just confirmed in his self-righteous loss. Uh, James is talking about a total turnaround here, isn't he? And not just an external turnaround, not, not just, a, okay, I'm going to tick some different boxes or something like that. This is a recognition of God's jealous demand for our allegiance. This is a recognition of the extraordinary grace that he's shown to us in Jesus. And, and recognising this relationship, everything changes. I humble myself before God. I come to him for forgiveness, cleansing, power to live his way, for for a new, purified, single-minded heart that will love him, a completely renounced, devilish and sinful ways. This is about living genuine, wholehearted lives for God. Friends, friends, do you ever catch yourself standing at that window, looking out with longing, feeling like you're missing out on the best in life, feeling like you, you wish you could have all the fun that non-Christians are having but still get to heaven? Does being, like a Christian, does being a Christian sometimes feel more like doing your homework than jumping on the trampoline? Well, I think James has got a couple of helpful things to say to us in this section. I just want to point out two things, as you can see on your outline. The first one, and this really, I've stolen this from Warren's passage last week, but uh, the first thing I think we've got to recognise is that if we reckon that what is going on out there is better and more joyful and more happy, we're kidding ourselves. We're kidding ourselves. Even at a human level, we're kidding ourselves. As James tells us, as we saw last week, worldly wisdom leads to disorder and every evil practice. As we're all looking out for our own interests and we're pursuing our own selfish agendas, that leads to fights and quarrels and envy and bitterness. Uh, We we might look out on that non-Christian world with longing, but if we were actually out there and some of us have been out there and know this, if we were actually out there, we'd see it's not all it's cracked up to be. Uh, We might wish that we could be guiltlessly greedy or sleep around or whatever, but if we actually put ourselves in the shoes of people like that, you don't have to have your heart changed very much as a Christian to see that if you're going to be exploiting people for their money or exploiting people sexually, you've really got to be very hard-hearted towards them. You can't have any love for them at all. Don't be very changed as a Christian to find that now nowhere near as attractive as it might have once seemed. If we were out there, we'd see that the joy that the world supposedly brings is profoundly unsatisfying. I reckon Mick Jagger's the only one who's sung rightly about it when he said that he can't get no satisfaction. It's not all it's cracked up to be, even, even at the level of human relationships. Uh, but second, and this comes from the passage today, what James has done here, he's helped us to, to remember what it actually means to be a Christian. It's easy, don't you reckon, to start to think of Christianity as a set of rules to obey. 
read the Bible, pray, go to church, don't do sins, do do good things. But what James, I think, really helpfully reminds us of here is this. It's about a relationship. A relationship with God. A relationship with God as like a husband. I reckon if we could get this clear, if we could see the love that this husband has for us, if we could see what, what a brilliant husband he is, it would change the way we feel. Uh, let, me, let me change it. Sometimes I deal with blokes who are desperately in love. Desperately in love, trying to get uh, a particular girl. Now, let me tell you, blokes who are desperately in love, they are not thinking about ticking boxes. Especially if, like me, they think they're punching above their weight. I have never been asked by a bloke in love, Jeff, can you tell me, what is the minimum number of flowers I can give to this girl and still win her love? Never heard it said. You know, I've never heard a bloke who's desperately in love say to me, Jeff, I want this girl's love, but I really want to keep my options open. So let me, tell you, uh, let me ask you, how can I spend minimum time with her so that she loves me, but so I can still play the field? Never heard it said. You know, I've, I've never heard a bloke desperately in love say to me, I think what I'll do, I'll sleep around all my life, but then I'll marry this girl I'm in love with on my deathbed. A deathbed marriage, something like that. It's crazy. It's not the way love works. Not unless you're a very cynical, hard-hearted person. A relationship of love is not about ticking the boxes, keeping the rules. It's about just giving love with joy. You're asking, what can I give, not what's the minimum? You're asking, how can I love this person more, not how can I look around? Christianity is the same. It's not a set of rules to obey. It's not about ticking boxes. It's about a relationship with the God who made us, a relationship that the Bible even compares to a marriage relationship. God jealously demands our love and at great cost to himself he has lavished us with his grace and love it's so easy for us to forget that this is the center isn't it that it's a relationship with god that sin that we long for that worldly life it's not a question of harmless fun it is adultery against our jealous husband it is betrayal of the one who has lavished grace and mercy on us. Friends, I know it's hard to, to feel this now, but God loves you with a passionate, jealous, gracious love. Despite our adultery, he is ready to welcome us back with open arms. I know it's hard to, to, to feel that now. We can't see him face to face, but friends, the day is soon coming. The day is soon coming when we will see God face to face. And I tell you what, on that day, we are not going to be wishing we'd partied harder on earth. We're not going to be wishing, oh, I wish I hadn't missed out on that stuff that was there because this is all pretty drab. On that day, we're not going to be wishing that we left it later to come into relationship with our glorious maker. On that day, we'll realise that relationship with God that we've just got a foretaste of now, it is infinitely satisfying, infinitely better than any of the dung that's offered to us by this world and the devil. On that day we will see for sure that our God is a very, very good God to have as a loving provider and protector and a very, very bad God to have as a jealous enemy. So friends, don't look out the window. You're not missing anything. Nothing worth having. Friends, let's draw near to God through Jesus. Humbly and thankfully, 
love him with our heart and soul and mind and strength, genuinely not want to do that kind of stuff that is betraying him. It's not about ticking boxes. It's about loving this God. Let's offer our whole lives to our jealous and gracious God. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank and praise you because you are a real, personal God who is jealous for our love and who at great cost to yourself has made it possible for us to love you in response. We thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you that he has cleared the way for us to be in relationship with you. We pray, Heavenly Father, that by your spirit, you would give us a glimpse of what it means to be in relationship with you now, that give us a glimpse of the eternal life that we are already beginning to enjoy. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that day will soon come when Jesus will return and we will see you face to face and rejoice in the infinitely satisfying relationship that is ours with you by your grace. Our Father, please change us so that even now, by the power of your spirit, we love you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.